driving south on the Saanich Peninsula, through the territory of the Wasanish First Nation peoples. Earlier I passed a road sign in English that said, Welcome to North Saanich, and now another sign appears saying, Welcome to Central Saanich. I've obviously crossed a border of sorts, an imaginary line that marks off two different districts, but what kind of welcome is this? I know these welcome signs aren't really welcoming me. They're just blunt claims about colonial political jurisdictions that are imposed everywhere on the land. But as I drive further through the terrain, heading west to Sartle Preserve with the ancient village of Tseod in my rearview mirror, I pass a beautifully hand-carved wooden welcome pole at the side of the road. And the words of the artist Tomasson, whom we met in episode one, come to mind. Welcome. Welcome to Wasanish territory. Come close and let's talk. In this episode, we continue the conversation about the iconography and meaning of Coast Salish welcome poles with the artists Tomasson, also known as Charles Elliott, from Sartlet First Nation, and Doug LaFortune from Sayout Nation. With great humour and insight, Doug and Charles share stories about their activities and experiences as artists. We learn about the details of their creative inspirations and cultural traditions, but also they take us behind the scenes to talk about some of the challenges that they've faced of prejudice and racism in their long careers. So please come close and join us for Talking Territory. Welcome pools and cedar trees, part two. bit about your own work. You have welcome poles in Duncan. Ones that I'm very familiar with are the welcome house posts at the entrance of the First People's House in New Vic, um, which is a kind of space that supports Indigenous students from not only Canada, but from around the world. And you also have that welcome figure that was presented to the Queen at the opening of the 15th Commonwealth Games. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us how you go about deciding how you want the welcome poles to look, and does the place where it's erected, does it influence your design and the symbolism of your artwork? Well, I was first introduced to uh, welcome figures when I started the carver Simon Charlie from Cowichan, and he's done a lot of welcome figures. He's done some, he used to have some in the mall in Duncan, I don't know where they put them, and he, you know, he had the welcome figures all over the world, and uh, mm-hmm. he first introduced them to me. And um, I really liked him because originally, I don't know if Charles knows, can tell you, told you, but you know, you, his hands are like this. This it was a welcome, but it was really meant to say that I have no weapons, right? Yeah, when their hands were up like this. But it turned into you know welcome, and there's a big one he has at the museum. It's about 10 or 12 feet, right? Simon's? Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. And it's one of the best ones I've seen. The hands are, look like real hands. And mm-hmm. I really admire it. I really Me wanted, too. Yeah. wanted to make my figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, he was pretty brave back in the 70s, 60s, I guess, because he put everything on that welcome figure. I've never done that yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, he's, that's pretty quite a thing to do in the 60s, I think. Yeah. What do you mean by everything? He put a penis on it. Oh, I see. Okay, <laughs> like very uh, intimate parts. Man. And a dude, you know, it's ten feet tall, so. It's yeah, it was, <laughs> it's noticeable, is it? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Seriously, is it still there? Yeah, is it? It's still there. It's 
awesome. It's beautiful. But I, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't as brave as that. I've never done one like that. When you're thinking about your designs and what you're going to do for the welcome pool, would you say it's up to you to shape the meaning, or are you bound by certain kind of protocols? Like, is there a right and wrong way to treat the human figure? Or are there kind of guidelines, or mm. is it totally your own? You wouldn't um, want to make a hand like this. A fist. Because that means they want to fight. Yeah. That's when the hands are open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're yeah. open to friendship. I wanted to make it look like a, a human, natural human figure. And the only thing that was different was, and he did the same thing, was we made it with, like the quagulf ones have long, like skirts, right? Mm-hmm. Ours had like a... Breach cloud or something. Sure, like, like yeah. And occasionally, people like it because we put the real looking bum on and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. That's what they say about the one at the first people's house. Yeah, that's cool. Ladies, I like that. The lady says, I like looking at the bum and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Who was your model? <laughs> it was Perry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When you talk about your your work and cultural traditions, what would be the ways to identify that in particular, like for people that, say, are unfamiliar with the iconography? I guess, how could you say the, the designs um, are quite similar to Simon's, and, and, you know, he's really, he's a real Salish, and he's related to us, actually. But his designs... Are real true coast sailors. They they fit in the joints in the different areas. I think mm-hmm. right. And there, he told me when I started carving that that if you look at a fish that's spawned and laying on the riverbed, you know how you can see the eye sockets and the, mm-hmm. the different joints and the bones and stuff like that. That's what our coast sailors designs. He told me that's what they were based on. And so you kind of see those similarities in coast, real Coselish art. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of darts and crescents and mm-hmm. ovoids, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the eyes and things weren't really ovoids, they were crescents that were mm-hmm. put together like a touching, which would make a circle, right? And that's basically what is on most of the designs. You don't see any really elongated trigons. I guess they call them trigons now. Right? Some of them do. Yeah. I just, I just say call them, use darts. I yeah. just call them darts. Yeah. <laughs> and these different elements, they're inherited. There's like a deep history. Well, they've been handed down, you know. They they came from way, way back. And um, somebody told me, an old lady told me, we learned them out of nature. You know, she's looking at my work. She said, where did you get all that? And I told her, well, I just kind of learned it from other artists. And she said... Well, it came from all the different things in uh, nature, different parts of nature, yeah, and we learned it from there, yeah. That's really interesting because when we think about the actual place where we are, the land, uh, the trees, the shapes of the trees, the way the water looks, and and presumably that's why it matters that for people to understand about these histories and aesthetic histories, because it's actually comes from the earth. Well, you know? yeah, it's exactly yeah. like someone said. You look at a, and I guess he, he just used the salmon as an example, spawn salmon. But I mean, if you look at a deer skeleton remains, 
you see the same thing with circles and joints and crescents and things like mm -hmm. that. And even on leaves, or you see a, a maple, mm -hmm. like you can see designs. Back in the old days, Charles would go to a museum and look up old art, and a lot of the old, old Cosetta things had a lot of mm -hmm. things like that. When we'd go there, I didn't know I used to go there, and, and I had to go uh, to see the head boss, who was Peter McNair in those days. And I'd have to go and wait, and he said I could come into his office and I'd go. And you want to? What do you? What do you want? And I said I want to look at some of our stuff. I want to look at some of the old pieces. And they had it in a place they called archives. It's not on display. It's put away, and it's ours, you know. So anyways, I put up with what I had to put up with. And I used to go in. And I always took a paper and pencil, so when I'd go in there, I'd draw really fast. As fast as I could, you know, and collected it all, you know, collected whatever I could, yeah. So he was like a guard. He would stand uh, just outside the room, because I was allowed to go into the uh, room where they kept our stuff. But um, he'd be right at the door watching me. So that would have been in through the 70s and 80s, was yeah, it? Yeah, early 60s. Yeah, late 60s. 60s yeah. Early 70s. Really? I used to go there a lot, and I started going over to... UBC as well, because they got other stuff there. Yeah. What he didn't tell you is Peter McNair loved the Quag Hills people. Like oh. Tony Hunt and all those yeah. guys, they, were, they made a big impression. Mm, I see, so he was kind of biased was, oh. in terms yeah. of That's what was going on. He was biased. <laughs> yeah, and hence his not, he wasn't able to see the kind of work and artwork no. of this of no. the Pesenich. Yeah. No, a lot of people didn't. Yeah. At the time. Well, there's a like say there's was boxy to me, you know, like it would like a box with a design. Ours was just free flowing. We didn't need to box our designs in. And so when Peter McNair and people like him would look at it, zoom zoom, all confused or something, and they didn't see the the beauty or the uh, the depth of it. What I'm hearing is that so much of your early experiences, your early part of your careers, maybe to the middle part of your careers, I don't know, is kind of brokered through museums and collectors, and mm -hmm. they're the ones that either open the doors or close the doors. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of galleries back then. Yeah. He wasn't so much into the galleries. I was. Like, I, you know, mm -hmm. we had to go knock on doors and. Charles seemed to be a little bit more lucky than me. He made he made uh, more connections with intellectual people and stuff mm -hmm. like that, where who more more open minded. I was sad to knock on doors and be turned away and you know things like that. Mm -hmm. And back then, Charles has said this before: is nobody wanted to be Coast Salish artists, right? There wasn't yeah, that's right. Said they were, but um, and now it's a big trend. Everybody's Coast Salish or related Coast Salish or whatever. Yeah. Everybody but, wants to be that now. So what we usually do as artists is, where is it going to be? Do you have any idea where you might put it or what you might do with it? And they say, yeah, they tell us, the, the client tells us. And we say, well, can we see it? Can we walk around and have a look at where this might be? And it's just an artisting game. Gives you a feeling, a flow. Then we have to come up with an idea of what we're going to do that represents the area, represents what we like, and stuff like that. Does the patron source the the log, or do you have to source no, them? No, we have our 
own sources, sources okay. that we like to buy wood up. Then you've got to wait for it to cure and dry? No, no. No? It's a miss. Yeah. Well, when you open up a log, start carving this piece out, that it'll dry faster. Okay. It'll stay soaking wet if you don't open it up. But um, And opening it up means taking the bark off? Taking the bark off and shaping it. What you do, you shape it out, and dry, drier cedar is harder to carve. Yeah. Because it... It um, chips, right? It starts getting chippy. And so they'd also need a certain girth as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, they, yeah. So you'd three have, to four feet across. So what kind of age would that tree be? Five, six hundred years. Really? Yeah. And you can't just use any logs. You got, you know, you got to find a log that is nice and straight, doesn't have knots, and it's yeah. really tight grain. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be old. Like. The closer those rings are together, the better it is. We call that tight growth ring. And the growth rings are like this wide <laughs> apart. It's really hard to When the rings yeah. are farther the apart. Means, yeah, yeah, you're younger, yeah. Yeah, they're younger and they're growing quickly, aren't they? And they're different mm. than uh, the logs that we carve nowadays. They want to harvest them fast, you know, and the growth rings are far apart. Mm-hmm. And that's a different variety of it cedar? It is, yeah. It's the right. same cedar, but it's modified, yeah. It's not like the old, old ones that you see. Yeah, where they were just sort of naturally growing and they yeah, would plant exactly. themselves. and yeah. So once you get through with all that, all that stuff, then you cut all the figures out that you want and things like that. Then you'd mm-hmm. carry on carving them on the site, like for the ones at Uvic. Mm-hmm. So those would have been rough cut, and then they would have been transported as rough cut? Not or? those ones, in it. First of all, we'd be carving on non-native land, mm-hmm. so the taxman's waiting for you. Yeah. And Uvic is not, well, not classified as native land, even though it is, right? But so the issue is around being on reserve yeah and when you're on reserve you're you can you're kind of protected i suppose or at least you have rights over your own Mm. place it's not something that was built in there for us see the all reserve lands are federal property so the federal government does not tax itself and the provincial government cannot tax the federal land Thank you for that clarification. That's that's the um, basic bones of the how come we don't have to pay tax. I looked into it, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that because that's important. Very often it's presented as if that there are some um, set of special rights. Really, actually, what you're saying is that that's the colonial regime. Yeah, it is. And and they just won't tax themselves, as Mm -hmm. you say. Ah, They haven't found a way to get around it for us neither. So obviously we're learning, you know, that there's meanings in the things that are represented. This, the hands are meaningful. The fact that it's a human figure, it is meaningful. As you were saying earlier, Charles, the or earlier Poles would have particular ancestors represented. Mm-hmm. And now maybe they're not particular people, but nevertheless, they're still a human form. So these welcome Poles then are... They're not like, say, a tourist sign, you know, that they, they actually mark Wasanich territory um, using this kind of visual language. And we are kind of being spoken to in a sense. Yeah, for, I'm thinking of, from the position of a non-Indigenous person. So my question is, who is being welcomed? And what are we, say, as guests, meant to learn from the poll when we encounter one on Wasanich territory? When I did those ones at the... At UVic, I'm based upon our values, our beliefs, and most important value, our people had and have had through time as family. You know, 
If you look at those poles, the, the mother has a baby, and the father's. Yeah. I was thinking about me and my son. You know, that's why they were together, and a lot of, you know, a lot of them have personal meanings, maybe to who's ever carving them at the time, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. depends on what, you, you know, that's basically a message that you're trying to say. It's like just a welcome bigger, it's welcome to the territory, welcome everyone, not just some certain people are Kosage, people welcomed, welcomed everybody, and that was probably our weakness to welcome everyone, you know what I mean? <laughs> we didn't know that white people were going to come here and steal all our land and put us on a little plot of land and, you know, welcome, but mind your manners, be, you know, obey our rules and things mm -hmm. like that. Because we are the keepers of the land. Don't litter it and don't, you know, do stuff like that. Pollute it, which everybody has done. So we both worked at Butcher Gardens together. In this building? Yeah, we roughed out poles here and then we had to take them down there and then we had to finish them down there. This is a part of that building that they made for us. Really, it was just a framework, you know, because when we were down there, there was a, it had a roof and it didn't even have any walls. It had no. a fence, <laughs> had a fence around it and we were on blacktop blacktop floor because it was in a part of the parking lot. So this is really a very nice moment then that we're sharing here yeah. because bringing you two together to mm. be in a building that you worked in many years ago yeah. mm. to make some poles for the butcher They're still gardens. down there yet. Yeah. Apparently woodpeckers been eating the pole I did up. Really? He made a nest up in the <laughs> Oh <laughs> it was funny when we were working there because people came from everywhere and we were like in a 90 foot long building because there was two 30 foot poles in there end to end and it was a great time in my life Doug yeah it was worked with it my was. cousin yeah and uh, but it was funny because uh had a, a it's kind of like a chain link fence around the outside there and but nine o'clock in the morning the gates would open and floods of hundreds of people <laughs> would come flooding in. From all over the world. Yeah, and they'd see us and they'd come trotting over and uh, the craziest questions that we had to answer, you know. I was trying to carve in this question after question. You know, we'd say, yeah, yeah, huh? it's Cedar, keep trying to get back to work. Yeah. We're being rude, but that's, you have to be in a frame of mind to carve, right? You know, we, we didn't mind the questions so much. Mm. He always answered, but every now and then you get a guy from way down south and he'd be really rude and real hillbilly. He'd say, Y'all carved this? Well, did you use traditional tools or you use chainsaws? And you'd hear it over and over again. Over and over. Finally, I got tired one day and I said, uh, Well, yeah, did you come here in a car or do you come in here a horse and buggy? I just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. Really. And it wasn't so much the question, it was. Uh, condescending way he talked to us. Yeah. We'd start dancing and everything outside there. They'd be oh. jumping around in circles and going, woo, 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 woo. Oh, no, seriously. <laughs> Showing oh. us how stupid they were. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Most of the European people, Germany and places yeah. like that, they were pretty nice people. Those cowboys from the States. Yeah, I know. 
empathize. You know, here you are exposed to the public, you're working and having to deal with like the tsunami of ignorance that you endured it is impressive. Could have had somebody there to document it. It probably would have been a very interesting documentary, eh? Yeah. They just threw us out there and left us. We were working up in uh, Lake Couch and this guy used to come by and stand there and stare at me every day. <laughs> Never really say anything. So one day he was, there was a fence around us and I went close enough and um, to get a conversation. And he spoke up and he said, your grandfather would be ashamed of you. And I said, why? He said, that saw you're using, that's not traditional. <laughs> your grandfather would be ashamed of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> we always say, like, you know, well, if our grandfather had chainsaws, he would have used them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If he had a crane, he would have used that. They're not stupid, you know what Yeah, I mean? yeah. And these are tools, after yeah. all. What I'm hearing is um, that there's this kind of expectation of a kind of authenticity yeah. that people kind of force mm -hmm. on you, you yeah, know? Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, you know, Simon Charlie, he was real old school. He'd mm -hmm. take a big 40-foot log. He cleaned them all by hand with an axe, double-headed axe. Holy cow. First time I ever saw that. Um, well, the water's just right here, and my dad always had a net down at the beach, hiding down there, because we weren't allowed to set a net. And uh, anyway, he'd go down there and clean up his net, but uh, we went down this there one day, and I could hear, pow, pow, pow. And I said, what, what's going on? I was asking, and he said, oh, you... You'll wait, just wait, you'll see. So we went and got the edge of the bank and then down the hill. And an uh, old man was carving a dugout canoe down there. And he was carving it with an axe. Yeah. He was shaping the bottom out. Would there have been many cedar canoes that people would have used still? And Oh yeah. Even uh, old ladies used to have their own canoes when I was a little kid. Because um, my... Mum's house was over that way, and they're real close to the water. Mm. So my grandparents were there, and we'd go over there, and the old ladies would be fishing back and forth, rowing, dugout canoes, dragging a lure. Yeah. thinking more expansively about the business because Butchart is, a, to my mind, a problematic place because he was a total colonialist, uh, made money out of uh, making cement. Cement? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, cement is one material that unfortunately is quite central to the, the built environment. On our land, making millions and he never, ever... That was a really important area to yeah. our people down yeah. there. Like it was, uh, I mentioned to you, it was called Sneetquist. That means the home of the blue grouse. That's what, it's not really called uh, Todd Inlet or Butchered Garden or whatever. Sneetquist is the real name. And it's, well, my dad was a, like a language teacher and wrote the language, but he was fierce about protecting our culture. And, and uh, he would have he just hated that. I just want to briefly intervene here to explore how Sneakwith is an example of contrasting perceptions of land. Not only is the site a tourist destination for visitors to Canada, but as a designated National Historic Site, Butchart Gardens celebrates colonial tastes and attitudes to managing nature. 
However, as Tomasin has just indicated, there is another story to tell about Butchart Gardens. To learn more, let's hear from the legal scholar Robert Clifford from Sale First Nation. I leave it to him to explain the significance of this particular place. Stinkwith as being our, our first village site, that's where Slamuk Grandfather Rain, the first Spanish man, came to the earth in the form of rain, so a sacred place for us. And um, it was really kind of devastated, I guess, with uh, the cement company that had operated there, founded by Robert Bouchard. And, you know, the inlet is mostly a moonscape now, just jellyfish live in there. You know, one of the indicator species is low oxygen levels and huge amounts of cement and um, kind of other contamination. Um, you know, and then right on the opposite side of the fence, you have Bouchard Gardens, which is kind of world-renowned for its beauty. Um, you know, built in the big, the quarry. It's a big kind of sunken garden is the quarry of where the cement factory operations were happening and so forth. So, And also bringing in native, you know, plants that are native from all over the world and transplanting them there. And often plants that aren't able to survive here without, you know, moving them into a greenhouse over the winter and so forth. So. A lot of our creation stories and some Chatham place names, a lot of these things are very intimately tied to place and to relationships with that place. And Butcher Gardens, just as an example, it's, you know, it's taking things from a very different context and transplanting them. And yeah, you can see interesting and difficult kind of tensions and ways that that plays out when you look at any given place like that. Do both of you have uh, a favorite artwork that you're particularly proud of? Mm. Yeah, probably. I like the one at the Butchard and I worked on it with my son there. And, uh, the other one is the Uptown Mall. Those, I did a fountain on one side, oh. and a pole on the other side. I'm really, you know what? Uh, funny story about that. My granddaughter was a little girl, and how old was she about? Ten years old. We're driving by there, and she knew about the project I was doing there. She was really excited and happy. Oh, I'm so happy you're doing that. I'm proud of you. And it changed my whole idea about it. I was very proud to do it. Hmm. it made me appreciate what we we're doing at the time. Because you do so many jobs, you don't think about them, right? Mm -hmm. Just get them done. And but I was very happy that that's why I really like those those two projects. Little person's eyes are see so many things you don't think about it. Yeah, Uvic. That's one you like? I like this one. Because this is um told by the old people from East Anish, West Anish and the story was the creator was standing amongst the blue herons in Tawasin. And there's the creator, and he was standing amongst the blue herons. And yeah, the creator gave this young guy who led a good life, he gave him the power to see the future. But you can never tell, nobody. Yeah. yeah, so it's always like that anyway. But he couldn't help himself. He told his wife, young wife, and so they ran away during the nighttime on a boat. And they came from around down Sycam Way, all the way around. Mm -hmm. They got as far as university and they were more and more fear coming into them. 
So they started climbing up the bank there, and they're going to go in the bush. And uh, the creator was um, still over at Stawasson, you know. They said he was, she was in standing in a little bit of water amongst the blue herons. That's why I got a blue herons uh, wrapped around there. And oh, yeah. um, he was watching them, and he kept telling them to stop, stop. And they wouldn't listen to it. When they started to climb up the bank, he, he threw a, what's called a quintalis. This is a certain rock. And it's supposed to be the heart of the sea lion. He took it and he threw it from Tawasin and he hit him. And uh, the story said it stuck in the guy's ass. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, our stories can be quite funny. Yeah, <laughs> and what happened, they got frozen into a stone when they were trying to climb the bank. And if you go there along the bottom of where universities are, they said there's two rocks side of the mountain there. Yeah, but that's the quintal, it's the heart of the sea land. So, Charles, is this your favorite? Well, I do I like it because it? it's a story that was told by the old people from around here. And, and then the other one is, I like the one I did at the school up here because that's another Saanich story. Very nice. Yeah. Talking Territory was produced for the Tree Museum by me, Fondafne Plesnar, and Idemar Sitbon. The music is created and performed by Idemar Sitbon too, and a special thanks goes to Charles Elliott, Doug LaFortune, and his wife Kathy, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. The Tree Museum is an art project that examines the aesthetics and politics of suburban expansion and its impact on forest habitats and animal lives. The museum is based in the unceded territory of the Wasanish First Nation peoples. For further information about this podcast and to learn more about the Tree Museum, please go to tree-museum.com.